BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you ever wondered if innovation is something that can be taught? From Offscript Health, welcome to Before We Die, the podcast where you'll meet the medtech innovators who will share the hurdles, successes, and heartbreaking failures in getting their products to patients before we die. I'm Joey Brenneman from Offscript Health. Now, this is not a podcast about death and dying, quite the opposite. It is about innovation and advancements in the medical industry that could potentially save lives. Joining me is our Before We Die creators and panel of experts, Sandra Miller, John McMahon, and Craig Allman. Now, this is part two of our conversation with renowned cardiologist and inventor, Dr. Paul Yock. Today's conversation is all about his vision for the Stanford Byers Center for Biodesign, of which he is the co-founder, along with our very own Sandra Miller. The two of them had a vision early on that there was a need for a program where innovation could be taught and mentored and wanted to tap the resources at Stanford and Silicon Valley to support early innovators. And our very own John McMahon was one of the original students of this program many years ago. So, John, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the program. Well, I can tell you from the student's perspective. Uh, I was at Stanford. I was getting a master's in electrical engineering. I was really on sort of an academic walkabout through the schools of the West Coast and ended up at Stanford. And there was a poster on campus. And I knew one thing about being an electrical engineer. Uh, I wasn't going to be a very good one. Um, so <laughs> I needed to find my way. And there's this poster says, you know, medical device 101, do you want to learn about medical devices? And coming from a frustrated orthopedic surgeon as a father, I knew there were things that needed attention. So I went to this yeah. conference. It was like 5 a.m. on a Saturday. It was some ridiculous time. And there were all these luminaries talking about this field. And at the end of that, there was an announcement that they were going to start a class at Stanford called Medical Device Design which I signed up for. And uh, that was the original, I think, the test rabbits. Stanford's known for <laughs> experimenting on its students. They sort of ran this course on us, which was collaborating engineers and med students. And from there, you know, uh, it worked out and, and they really cranked it up a notch. And I think uh, Sandy and uh, Paul will give a much better uh, description of it, but that was the student's perspective. And, and it's really affected tons and tons of students. The flyer that changed your life, huh? Good thing you saw that poster. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I have it. That's awesome. Well, we're really excited. So let's jump into part two of our conversation with Dr. Paul Yock and Sandra Miller. We wanted to um, take this opportunity here at Before We Die to kind of go back to that origin story of the biodesign program at Stanford because it's so unique and 
It also puts into context what we are talking about here on our podcast. So, Dr. Yock, I was wondering if you can tell us about how you first got the idea for this program. Well, glad to talk about it. I uh, had an enormous piece of good luck in my training, which was I wound up with a couple of mentors who were technology innovators uh, of the highest order. John Simpson and Tom Fogarty were their names. That was a pivotal experience for me. They were functioning outside of the university. I was in my training at the university. There was nothing at the university anywhere near like what they were doing, what they understood, how to do in terms of technology innovation, and really getting it to to patient care. How significant would you say was that mentorship for you? It was a hugely important turning point for me in, in my career. Uh, Fast forward a little bit, after I had spent time as an interventional cardiologist, had taken some technologies that I had invented through to patient care, I was reflecting back on this and thought, you know, universities should have training programs like this. It's really important. We, We are trying to create innovations that make it to patient care, but there's no training in in the real process that it takes to to do that. And so At about that time in my career, I was coming back from another institution to Stanford. Stanford had great engineering, kind of an entrepreneurial spirit, and it seemed like the right place to try to do something like this. And I had a secret weapon, which was Sandy Miller uh, joining the program with us. Sandy had worked with Dr. Simpson, understood technology innovation, And the two of us started noodling about what a program like this might look like. And Sandy, from your point of view, what did that noodling look like? There were all these people at Stanford, faculty primarily in the engineering school, the medical school, who were involved with medical device companies. But there wasn't, as an institution, Stanford itself wasn't really engaging with that industry, which was really striking because as Paul and I really started to uncover, you know, what was going on, we were in Silicon Valley. We were in Mm. the epicenter, which also at the time, you know, could be called Medical Device Valley because there were so many medical device companies, big and small, within a 15-mile radius. So it literally was the world's biggest concentration of med tech companies. And yet Stanford wasn't really relevant and engaging with that, which was different than the engineering school and how the engineering school at Stanford was a relevant resource and appropriately engaging its faculty and and students and so forth. Okay, so now you know the importance of mentorship and you recognize that the resources are all around you, but then how did you bring those pieces together to make a program? So initially, it was going out and literally meeting faculty at Stanford, you know, no matter whether they were from the engineering school or the medical school or what have you, even the business school, you know, that each of those individual faculty members in their experiences with medical device, they had really valuable networks and mentors, as Paul was alluding to. So by mapping them, identifying them, having them as part of, you know, this sort of network, 
It was about being able to help the students who were coming up, you know, the next sort of trainees, uh, people like Paul Yock when he was a trainee, right? You know, Paul describes us being so lucky in having these two mentors and these models sort of help him feel like, oh, yeah, I might be able to do this. So let's try to like, how can we organize something to do that more effectively? So were you thinking to really help the pathway you would come through, Paul, like, you know, to, to look at making better or more qualified or more up to speed physicians? Or was it more about devices when you really started started out? The anchor has always been uh, on training and, and trying to bring the experience I had with these mentors inside the university. Our philosophy, we like to say, is you can take someone who is a good inventor, make them a great inventor. You can take someone who doesn't think they're an inventor and uh, make them an inventor. That That's our emphasis. Did you have a methodology worked out when you started or did that develop over time? Both. So it was clear to me from working with Dr. Simpson, Dr. Fogarty, that they had methodologies that that they used and they were similar in that they were anchored on the patient. Find out what the patient needs first, be really clear about that and and then bring it forward. And and so So there's, you know, there's some phenomenal numbers for our listeners about how many patients and the scale of things that have come out of it. But when you were initially thinking, were you saying, well, let's give it a shot for a couple of years, or we're going to give this three years and see if we can make an impact? When did you sort of get to a tipping point to say, hey, we really, we might be onto something good here? Yeah, I would say, Sandy, it was some years in, uh, but we never had a very grand long-term vision. It was experimental from the start. I would agree. I, I always think of it as growing organically, but the structure that I think about that is What's sort of all under the biodesign umbrella today, I think of as almost a series of three startups that just happened to occur inside the university and grew over time to become today's, you know, biodesign center. Paul, why don't you speak to just what is the biodesign process and method? How how do you how do you describe that today? I think that's important. Yeah. The key Part of the process is not to get in a hurry about inventing something. And what I mean by that, and it goes back to really understanding what the patient needs and understanding that uh, in depth. A lot of the innovation that we see in companies and universities both is is sort of ready, fire, aim innovation, right? You, we, we all love to get to the inventing part, uh, but we may not have sized up the need right. And so... What we teach is, frankly, a process of slowing down innovators in the need characterization phase to to really make sure that they understand uh, what the patients need, what the system needs uh, as an innovation before going on to invent. Inventing is the easy part, actually. Getting the need right is is the tough part. So in, in a nutshell, that's the process we teach. We have some mechanisms where we really require that our trainees have a very specific characterization of the need before they try to invent anything. I would think that, especially with this generation of immediate gratification and that information is just a click away, that you would really have to train people to slow down and be patient and not have everything all at once. Like I would imagine that sounds very simple when you put it out there, but you know we're used to in this day and age, 
ordering something from Amazon and having it right away or our food or whatever, you know, in the next generation, even even more so has never been without that technology. So to get them to slow down and be in process, I would think might be a little harder than it sounds. You're absolutely right, Joy. It is challenging. Uh, and uh, what you need to do is to develop some deliverables uh, that they can be proud of. And so we, mm. we have some uh, mechanism. We, we have a thing called a need specification, which is a, a specific description of what an ideal technology would look like. And that's what they work on. That's what they deliver. That's what we celebrate. Uh, we have them do a bunch of those, and only the best ones go forward into the inventing phase. Not everybody gets a trophy. Yep. So then who are the candidates that you're looking for, and how many, and where do they come from, and you know, what kind of people, minds get selected for this program? Well, I'll, I'll talk about our fellowship program. We, we have a number of different layers and for graduate students, undergraduate students, but the center focus is a fellowship. These are physicians or engineers who are through their training on the physician side. They've got their MD, usually their residency training on the engineering side. They may have a master's degree or a PhD. Uh, and what we're looking for, we're looking to form teams of combined engineers and physicians. It's people who want to be inventors of medical technology. There is a type that's recognizable. They, they have tried to do it. They've tried to invent things and it, it just hasn't worked out. You know, they're the kind of people who get obsessed with a problem and uh, just keep chewing on it and they can't stop themselves from trying to invent something. That's the spark we're looking for. Wow. And the role of the patient in this whole process? Uh, it is absolutely essential to understand what patients need. So what we do is uh, for the first two months of the program, our fellow teams go live in the hospitals and the clinics, and they talk to as many patients uh, with that set of conditions that they're interested in as they can. We tell them, go home with the patients if, if you can, if they'll let you, you know, so that wow. you can really get a, a, a feel of perspective and empathy uh, for what that patient is going through. And then they, at all the other stages in the process, when they have a technology, back to the patients, surveys or direct conversations, show them the technology, Do, you know, is this something you could see being used for you? So there, there is a deep patient engagement across the whole spectrum. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So what are two examples like uh, of the needs that have been met? Well, so one of the bigger impact technologies 
has to do with uh, monitoring heart rhythms. So you may have had the experience that that your heart skips a beat, you feel a little fluttering in it, and, you, and you're thinking, huh, what, what's that, and should I worry about it? And uh, the system used to be that you would go to see your doctor, they would examine you, and nothing was clearly wrong on the exam. They'd get an electrocardiogram, and nothing was going on. Uh, because it happened two weeks ago, Tuesday, and it's not happening in the office. But they would say, you know, this could be serious. Some of these rhythm disturbances are life-threatening. So I'm going to send you to a cardiologist. And same thing would go on in the cardiologist's office, the EKG be normal. And so the cardiologists say, hmm, this could be serious. I'm going to send you and get a recording of your heartbeat. And you'd go with this contraption of six leads pasted to your chest and, and, a, and a recorder, and you'd try to wear that for a few days, but you couldn't take a shower and you couldn't sweat. And it was an example of too much technology, old technology, and that technology not being available to the primary care doctor. So fast forward, uh, the team of uh, fellows that worked on this developed a smart bandage. The new scenario, this, this is a, a, a little thing uh, that is it's about five inches across. And what happens now, you go in and that first visit to your doctor, your, your generalist, you say, I'm having this thing. I, I don't know whether it's serious or not. Your doctor reaches into a drawer and puts on this patch. And wow. the patch records your heartbeat for two weeks. It gets sent in to a AI-based... Can you shower with that? You can shower with it. Okay, uh, It's very comfortable. Gets sent in to an AI-based uh, analysis. Your internist gets a note back 95% of the time saying, no problem, this is not anything to worry about. 5% of the time, there's something to worry about, which means that only 5% of those patients need to go see the cardiologist. Wow. The other 95% save the time, save the money. Yeah. Save the worry uh, of that delay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A, a fun story about when they were developing that, the biodesign team that was working on this, they were coming in and they were talking about showering and they were showing their chest. They were testing different types of effectively glues that would stand up to showering because they were trying to get it to to be able to be on there for a month. Like, could you could it stand up for there? So it's hysterical conversations in the lab. You can only imagine. <laughs> but also, you know, you need people to be thinking about that in order for people to adopt this or may, you know, really be thinking about the person who's going to use it as opposed to, you know, this big piece of technology that works. But can you really is it really practical to try it? So, Paul, any other need? You know, I know there are so many that, you know, have been um, really powerful over the years, but any other need that's sort of fun to talk about? Well, the, the one other that comes to mind was a group uh, that was working on tremors. So uh, there, there are a couple different kinds of tremors. There's Parkinson's, of course. And then there's a thing that's called benign tremor of the elderly, which is not at all benign. Uh, mm -hmm. So there, there are many elderly people who can't eat decently. They, they can't get dressed be because they have a bad tremor. This team that worked on this had what I think is a really brilliant insight. So there is a technology that works for these tremors, and that's called deep brain stimulation. So you actually put an electrode in the brain in the right area of, of the cortex that controls that tremor, and you can quiet the tremor. 
So the brilliant insight this team had is, well, wait a minute. There are nerves that go down to the, the hand and wrist where, where the tremor is. Those nerves, if you trace them backwards, go to exactly the right place in the brain that's controlling the tremor center. Can we send a signal backwards through those nerves uh, and control the tremor? Fast forward, the answer is yes. Wow. You can put on a non-invasive wristband that interrogates what the right signal is, experiments with some different signals, finds the right signal, and, and quiets the tremor with, with just a wristband. Uh, it's a company called Cala Health. So, Recently, uh, the Biodesign Center celebrated 21 year, 20 years, right? 20 it's years. It's been around yeah. 20 years. So I'm, I'm imagining that that celebration came up during COVID. And so, I don't know, did you get to celebrate the way that you should celebrate 20 years of innovation and teaching people how to innovate? We had a small celebration. There, there, were, there were five people, the president of the university, the dean of engineering, the dean of medicine, and, and a couple others, and several hundred people on a webcast. Uh, so that, that was our celebration. Wow. But the most fun about it was the president, uh, who's a very distinguished guy, of course, saying, this is what Stanford is about, and th this is a jewel in the in the university. So that that was enough celebration for us. Well, it really is incredible, and I have to say that in doing the research for this, I um, found the values and purposes of the program on the website, and I was just so inspired by them. I printed them out. It lists collaboration, integrity, leadership, empathy, and it says we listen with our hearts. Like I really hope that. These aren't just words that look good on paper, but they that they actually get practiced there. And I actually thought, can we put these in every school, every government building? It would be really great to have these posters everywhere. But one <laughs> of the things that I did notice on the list was diversity. And it says everyone's voice has something to contribute. But I'm noticing as somebody who's coming to this field as an outsider, even as we are interviewing all these people for the for the show, the field does not seem so diverse. You know, I'm glad I'm glad you're bringing this up, Joey, because I have to admit that if you had asked me, you know, three to four years ago, okay, how, you know, we know that tech is bad from a diversity standpoint, right? That that mm -hmm. there's a really skewed distribution of of uh, racial minorities and women, frankly. I, I would have said though, health technology is different, and you know what? It's not. We actually, with the summer of 20, you know, upheaval, we really dug into the numbers uh, in our industry, and it is exactly as bad uh, as the rest of tech. I, I'd say it's a worse problem than the rest of tech because what we're trying to do is to serve those communities with the technologies we develop. How can we do that without having innovators who are represented representative of those uh, communities. So it's a huge crisis and, and it's actually something we're working hard on. We have initiated a, a new program called Diversity by Doing in Health Tech. 
And the, the premise is that some of the big companies in medtech are doing a good job of trying to increase representation. The startups just don't have the resources or the expertise mm -hmm. or the experience to do it. And so we're trying to partner with the health tech startups to, to on a community basis, source talented STEM uh, students, get them excited about health tech as a career pathway, try to help them along, uh, whether they're at community colleges or, or universities, to understand uh, how exciting this field is and frankly, to sell them on the fact that uh, they can do some real good for their communities by participating in this sector. I even think like going beyond the STEM fields because there's a huge amount of creativity there that does not get, is not as obvious to people, right? You think STEM, you think, okay, it's very, not necessarily creative, very cerebral and, you know, but as I'm finding out, it's very creative. So maybe looking even outside of people who excel at STEM, because I know as a young girl, I was told that I'm not good at science, right? Yeah. So I got the message loud and clear without anybody ever really saying it. So I feel like, oh, maybe you go to those creative people and say, what's your, how's your mind thinking? You know, because there are those people who don't give up on things that aren't necessarily in a STEM school or think they're good at STEM. Absolutely right. And, and especially as more health technology gets applied in the consumer setting, people who aren't necessarily STEM trained or STEM deep have invaluable perspectives of, about uh, the, the instruments of social networking, digital communication, and so on. So uh, it, it does need to go broad. You're absolutely right. When I think about that diversity in the industry, we see it. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed from an engineering standpoint is within a lot of these companies, it's very much a meritocracy. If you can solve the problem, you solve the problem. There's, there's problems to be solved but getting that opportunity is limited. When we think about this though to our patients, the healthcare economics then, if you're really limiting the scope of who you're accessing, do you think it has an impact on health equity? There's a cascade there that, that needs to be addressed. Yeah, it's a, it's a hugely important point, John, that unfortunately a, a great deal of our successes in the health technology innovation space have flowed to the upper economic strata, right? It is absolutely appropriate for uh, innovators to take an explicit look at access and incorporate that in the way that they invent, right? To, to be thinking about, is this technology going to get to all socioeconomic groups, all racial groups? And we're putting that as an explicit part of our process now to, to have checks uh, exactly in those areas. Paul, has your program been picked up in other universities in the States or in other countries? Yeah, so that, that's been maybe the most surprising and frankly satisfying thing is to see a number of programs. And we don't have exact numbers. We have explicit partnerships with a number of countries uh, where the federal government has funded the development of biodesign programs. So that's India, Japan, Singapore, and Ireland, a number of other countries. We've trained faculty from 18 other countries, and they have set up programs in, in their countries, Europe, uh, Asia, uh, Africa now, uh, South America. Then in the U.S., there are now a host of programs. We organized the start of a national meeting that's now grown 
to 150 universities in the U.S. alone that teach some aspect of this the same process. They don't all call themselves biodesign. Wow. Uh, we're jealous of a lot of them of how good they are, <laughs> but we were kind of early on in that in that sequence. You know, I remember a quote of yours from a, a conference at Stanford several years ago, where you said the the sickest patient in the healthcare system today is the system itself. Have things gotten better? And what should healthcare innovators out there today keep in mind as they're developing exciting new innovations that they want to bring to patients? Oh, boy. So so a couple of responses. One is uh, you can't have lived through the pandemic without realizing that the, the, the whole healthcare system is seriously in distress. And that's, you know, several podcasts on its own yeah. to zoom in <laughs> on the health technology innovators. There is some good news, uh, which is, you know, eight, 10 years ago, it would be fair to say that the FDA itself was a major obstacle to innovation, and and they've gotten better. Their motivation is in the right place. There's still some friction, but the big problem right now is in reimbursement, meaning getting early stage technologies paid for. And, and the way that technologies are paid for in our system, of course, is either from the government through Medicare or Medicaid, or from insurance companies. And in both of those cases, they are very reluctant to pay for new technologies. So if you're a startup company, you have a great new technology that is through the FDA and is proven, it's extremely hard to get an insurance company or to get the government to pay for the next few years to allow your company to stay alive to prove that that you know, this technology is cost effective. It's a politically invisible, but uh, incredibly toxic part of the system right now. And it, I wish patients knew more about it, knew more to push on it, because it means that good technologies are not getting into patient care just because of this resistance that's built into the system. So is that true even even if solutions are saving money, even if these new innovations are yes. not only making better outcomes for patients, but even cost less than the current procedures? Even if you have a good story that eventually it'll save money, uh, that the easiest thing for the insurance companies and the government to, to do is to put their hands over their ears and say, we don't believe you. And the, the easiest thing is just to, to blanket slow down the introduction of new technologies. That's actually one of the reasons why we wanted to do the show, mm -hmm. because we wanted to make patients aware of what was emerging from the med tech field so that they could ask for it and demand it as an option. Yeah. Do you ever hear from patients that are using your devices or do you, you know, you get a card from a cardiologist like just, I used your rapid exchange today and it was great. <laughs> I mean, do you have any... Any feedback or, or uh, anecdotes for yeah, us? Yeah, th those are uh, the, the most satisfying things of all. I think particularly of the first uses of technologies, which I usually did myself. And, and to, you know, we'd get permission, of course, from the patients. And, and then to talk with them afterwards was really satisfying. Yeah, I, I would imagine. 
And, you know, just to throw out some numbers here to close our conversation today, since its inception, the Stanford Buyers Center for Biodesign has trained 182 innovation fellows, including our very own John McMahon, 2,225 Stanford students, and 74 Stanford faculty members. 52 companies were born out of this program, and they are helping over 4.2 million patients and counting. So that is just really impressive and proves that, yes, innovation can be taught. And we are really grateful because it has the potential to affect all of us. So thank you. And thank you so much for being here today. Thank you all. So another wonderful conversation with Dr. Paul Yock. Craig, I'm wondering what your thoughts are after talking with him about the biodesign program at Stanford. Uh, I've there's a few really left field thoughts. I mean, in the last 50 years, there's been a whole cult of problem solving in, especially in business, in project management, uh, a lot of ideas adapted from Japanese practices that have just filtered through, you know, every phase of business. And what Paul and Sandy have developed is much closer to the ground, much more intimate, much more iterative, and much closer to the patient or to put it in a different way, the consumer, than all of these other processes which are, are trying to approach that. Mm. And I'd be really curious to, to try a, a process like this in different fields. Yeah, I was thinking that too. Yeah. Like economics or sociology, because I think it would have a much better chance of succeeding and you know, expand it beyond the fields of medical technology. It would be, it would be interesting to try. Yeah, the, the regulated side of things you know, the fence built around patients by hospitals is really unique. The idea that you could actually go and interact with a patient or watch a clinician as an engineer, that was all new territory. Uh, I think you're hitting on a good point there on, on that aspect, but I interrupted. That's, that's okay. <laughs> it's allowed. Uh, typically in uh, economics and social theory, you might have an idea about how to, you know, have like a guaranteed income and what would that do? So it, it would be interesting to try to broaden it out because I don't think this is actually about creativity. Obviously, there's mm. creativity involved, but uh, you're teaching problem solving rather than just being cool and creative. And the problem solving leads to, the methodology leads to creativity. And that's kind of a natural end process. The fact that it's there's so much work to be done is really because there was this wall to innovate initially these sort of hierarchical, um, you know, who's allowed to invent and be creative. And I want to thank Joey for making me a biodesign graduate in, in the end there. Um, <laughs> I actually, uh, I know I could never get accepted to that program. Man, if I didn't get in on the front end, there was no way. Uh, they're all now, you know, they, they have to at least have written two books or something to get in. Timing is everything though, right? Like they need the guinea pig. So like it took, you know. Yeah, well, in... Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, in, in, in medical devices, you don't always want to be the guinea pig. It doesn't quite work. Out, but, <laughs> this is true. Um, but the, that that ability to to change things now, where he touched on some of the bottlenecks on innovation for the FDA and CMS, you know, it's interesting that this program also was a genesis to take students and send them to the FDA for internships and send mm. students to the patent office to understand what patents are like and to invite FDA regulators to go watch a case. 
they were approving yeah. devices. You imagine why you'd be slow and, and concerned about approving a device if you'd never seen a case. You never knew what problem it was trying to solve. Building that ecosystem of having people get exposure to it really all came out of out of biodesign. And it's it's changed a lot of people's lives. And hopefully a lot of the patients today that need devices before we die will will actually get access to them because of such creativity. And it's spread well beyond Stanford. So speaking of of guinea pigs and and John as a student, so <laughs> how can we um, popping up in that? <laughs> but but actually, I have an important you know point to make in that. Honestly, one of the smartest things Paul and I did is it was students like John, um, and we're going back to 1999. That first medical device design course was in the fall of 1999. That's how long I've known John. Oh my gosh. <laughs> We always said our best ideas came from students. So students would just come and knock on our door and get a meeting. And, you know, undergraduate students who were saying, we want to do something too. You know, we really need to be part of this biodesign thing. And they just formed a club, you know, a student club focused on biodesign. We're like, great. And actually the genesis of this medical device design course was because we had students who brought actually this little foundation who provided the sponsorship. We applied for a grant and got funding. It was all because of students. So that was really one of the smartest things we did uh, because the best ideas came from the students. But the second thing I think for our audience that's really important, and maybe, you know, hopefully this sort of is encouraging to you, is you have these people who are now who go through the biodesign course or program, use the textbook. It's used in universities all around the world. It's hard to actually have a success, quote, successful textbook, and the biodesign textbook happens to be one of those, but really teaches, you know, this methodology and guides you. So you're really focused on how you can have the most clinical impact, how you can really make a significant impact on the patient's quality of life, the patient outcomes, whatever it is. So to have people who are focused on that and learning how to take that next step further, to keep pushing so that they can really have a tremendous impact on the patient's outcome. And now, you know, after 20 years of biodesign, these people are in the big medical device companies. They are starting companies themselves. They're treating patients. A lot of these biodesign fellows are also doctors and surgeons. And there are more than 35 programs around the world that that are modeled after the biodesign methodology and programs. So it's some good stuff that is is out there and hope, hopefully is having major impacts on patients. All of these programs globally teach that a team has to be formed with different skill sets to come together and bring different strengths and vet stories and beat them up and really challenge them internally. And no matter where you are, whether it's in Singapore or the Japan program or Ireland, that's a fundamental. There is team building and the teams win. And biodesign uh, is made in response to that. It's really being paid forward and people are mentoring companies and startups. You get a you get an introduction from your program. You follow it up and you help the next group on. And it's just helping accelerate getting stuff to patients. And it's... Uh, it's fun to do. It's fun to do every day. 
Yeah, and I think that answers our initial question, can innovation be taught? And clearly it can, but it takes people who are innovators to be willing to teach it and mentor it and codify it and put it in a textbook. And a lot of times when you're inventing these fancy things, I think that you don't necessarily have to do that. So the fact that their foresight was there to say, yes, it can be taught, but somebody has to really put it into a class or bring these teams together and look at it from all sites. I think that foresight was just incredible. And before we go, I just feel like I really have to ask you, Sandy, does it meet your expectations? Do you feel like it exceeded I'm just interested in your thoughts. Absolutely. I think it has some of the things that happened after I left Biodesign. Now there is actually an executive education program to teach this methodology to people who are already in industry, which I think is one really important validation point. Craig mentioned interest in seeing the methodology applied to other areas. And so, you know, yes, this is still within healthcare, but they, as digital health has grown, There's a track now that's focused on using the biodesign methodology for digital health innovations. There's a lot more to do, and I'm just, you know, happy, so happy and privileged to have been a part of it. What an amazing legacy. Just congratulations, really, to you and to Dr. Yak. We are so proud of you here at Before We Die. And in the spirit of team, I just want to thank our Before We Die team, John and Craig, and today, especially Sandy, for coming together to collaborate on this project. And we just want to remind everybody that you can listen to our Lab Before Slab mini episodes where Sandy, John, and Craig geek out about other fascinating happenings in the med tech world. And as always, our hope is that some of the cutting edge technology that we talk about on this show will be available to the patients who need them before we die. Thanks for listening. Before We Die is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Before We Die is mixed by Kyle Moore. Our Before We Die panel of experts and creators of the show are Sandra Miller, John McMahon, and Craig Allman. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Share your healthcare stories with us and we might just play them on the air in a future episode. For more information, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.